0: If you have your Bibles, please open them to Genesis chapter 12. And if you're on a digital device, this might be a little more tricky. Put your finger in there and go with me to Joshua chapter 24. And we're going to start with Joshua 24 and quickly bounce back to Genesis 12. While you're doing that, let me ask you this question. Kind of get your minds and hearts moving in the right direction and hearing the text before us this morning. If you were to tell an Old Testament person how they can get saved from their sin and be rescued from God's eternal judgment, how would you share the gospel? Since Jesus had never come, Jesus had not yet died for sins, there was no sacrificial system, and Israel wasn't set up as a place for which people could go and pursue the grace of God. How would you talk to a person and say, you know what, you need to be saved from God's judgment that comes to all sinners. And they say, oh, wow, that man, I, I want to be saved from judgment. So how do I get saved? What's your answer? Some of you are like, I have no idea. <laughs> like, that's a really good question. Because if there's no Jesus to talk about, I don't know how someone gets saved. I, I think when you read Genesis 12 through 24 carefully, and we'll get there in just a moment, so stick with me in Joshua 24. When you read it carefully, you see that Moses organizes that section of Scripture as a unit. It's really through chapter 22, in which the, the apex, the focus of that unit is chapters 15 through 17, where, where Abraham and God are interacting on the basis of God's promise, and I think In the clearest language of the text, although it's very simple, you see Abraham get saved. That'd be the language we use. And I think Moses called to Israel, remember he's the author of the book, the Holy Spirit inspiring the text here, is calling all of us to have an understanding that salvation is something that happens by God's grace, and it's not something that's ever changed. From the moment Adam and Eve first fell into sin, salvation has not changed. That men are always saved by the grace of God as they respond to God's offer of salvation and redemption. So, I, what I want you to do is recognize that if that's Moses' purpose, to call Israel to see that, that's how we need to view the text. Um, if any of you want to defend that or wants me to defend that, let me just give you my 30 second confusing spiel. It's a chiastic arrangement, so I've got like four of you in that now understand, whereby you see Abraham's life and you see his struggles. For instance, in chapter 12, he's called by by being granted promises. In chapter 22, the promises are fulfilled. In chapters 13 and 14, you see Lot interacting with Sodom and Abraham rescuing Lot from Sodom. In chapters 18 and 19, you see Lot once again in Sodom being rescued from Sodom by Abraham's pleading to the Lord for grace. Then you come to chapters 15 and 17, and you see Abraham being promised God's grace. And so you kind of have this this building where 15 and 17 are on the top, and in chapter 16, he's struggling in his faith. And so, so those three chapters to me are the central themes that we are called to pay careful attention to. So kind of try to build out a theology of salvation. Some of you come from various religious backgrounds. Bakersfield seems to be a a little bit of a reflection of our country, a little bit of a spiritual melting pot uh, in some ways. I think with um, some of our Hispanic heritage, you see that there's a strong Catholic bent, um, probably the importation of a lot of the kind of Texas, Oklahoma feel you know, where you got this kind of Baptist Bible belt, there's like 80 Baptist churches in town, who, who knows actually what they really believe, but they are Baptists, um, there's, there's definitely kind of a community Bible church feel, because Bakersfield loves Bakersfield, and we want to get together, we are very, kind of a we are a, we are a small community, it's amazing to me how many people know each other, It's like a half million people, but people know each other, it wouldn't surprise me that if you meet a guest here, they know people you know, I I'm amazed by a church that's in the top 50 in this country in terms of size where everyone knows everyone. Go down to LA, no one knows anyone. And so you have this kind of community feel, but I think what it's created is a a spiritual vacuum where people kind of know about God, but don't actually really have a theology that's clear enough to call one another to true saving faith. There's just a lot of God talk. And so I want to challenge you as a church family to get better and more robust in your understanding of the gospel so you can help others understand why just understanding who God is isn't enough. Okay, so let's dive in. I want to start with Joshua 24 because Joshua is preaching a similar message to Israel. He is about ready to die. He's concerned that Israel is struggling to apprehend the grace of God and fully embrace it. And so he, he puts in here a little bit of insight in, into what we see in Genesis 12. Let me get to Joshua my Bible. So he's speaking to Israel in verse 1. He gathers all the tribes. Remember, Joshua's about to die. He's concerned because he knows that there's a little bit of, um, of idolatry. They have false gods among them. And so they kind of are trying to do the both and. We want God, Yahweh, and we want our gods, Baal and Asherah's. And so in verses 1, uh, when he calls them together in verses 2 and 3 and 4, he preaches to them. Joshua said to all the people, verse 2, thus says the Lord. That's actually Yahweh's name. So he's naming the Lord. He's not just calling a master. He's saying this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, has done. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terra." the father of Abraham, and Nahor. And they served whom? They served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. So you see this emphasis of God doing this, maybe you could say rescue mission, in which Abraham, when God called him, was doing what? I might say this, he was minding his own business in a, in a city of unbelief, worshiping false gods, and Abraham was an idolater. Okay, so if we're going to de- describe Abraham's condition, was he a righteous man? No. Was he a godly man? No. Was he even a good man? No. He was just a, he's just a man. Come back with me to chapter 12, verse 1 in Genesis. The account here in chapter 12 begins when Abraham, and he's called Abram here. His name is changed in chapter 17 again, kind of that that peak of the story's emphasis. He's 75 in this text. His wife is 65. So I want you to picture a 75-year-old man and a 65-year-old man. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So he had originally, his family moved from Uz. Let me just do this in your direction. He moved from Uz, which is kind of uh, on the Euphrates River, follows the Euphrates up kind of north of Israel to Haran. And then as he gets called from God at the age of 75, he comes and descends down into that land of Canaan where we would think of Israel in its modern day location is, is at. He's 75 years old. How many children does Abraham have at this point? None. He has zero. In fact, Deuteronomy makes it clear, helping Israel to understand this. says, uh, Israel, when I called you, you were the least of all the peoples of the earth. I didn't choose you because you were a great nation. So how great is the nation when God decides I'm going to use Abram to make a nation? There's two geriatrics. No kids. She's barren. She can't have any children. So you have... have God choosing a man to begin a nation, and he's already in the twilight of his life. He is beyond fertility in the sense of his family, and it's almost like the last whimper of of vitality is leaving his family line when God says, nope, I'm going to revive it, and I'm going to make you a great nation. Deuteronomy makes the point. That God's choosing of Abraham, this is Deuteronomy, if you want to um, write this down in your notes, Deuteronomy 7, let me just read it for you out of my notes. For you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest. Yeah, no kidding, you were two. Right, And really, we want to get down to it, technically, Abraham just one. You are fewer in number than the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. So what is the cause of God saying, I choose Abram? It We'd would, it would say it this way, it is God's sovereign love. And by sovereign, I mean it's absolutely free. It was not that Abram was such a compelling, righteous man. He was an idol worshiper. It wasn't because Abram had done great deeds for the Lord. He hadn't yet. It wasn't because he is a profound man of faith. He hadn't believed yet. Abram had done nothing. God says, I have chosen to love you because I decided to do it. This is amazing because two choices are happening. One is an individual choice of a man who's redeemed from his sin and the judgment of his sin. The other is that God is also choosing a nation to come from this man. There is both individual loving and corporate loving. There is individual choosing and corporate. By that I mean the the group of people named Israel is being loved. While as a nation, they're just Abram and Sarai. It. so we talk about what the gospel is and how one must receive the gospel of jesus christ whether it's in the new testament or in the old testament let's just make it more generic the gospel of god i think there's this essential principle god preaches to israel in deuteronomy and it's this you and i deserve nothing from god it's not as though we have somehow cashed in the chips of our righteousness and our devotion and our church attendance. And God's like, oh, well, in exchange for that, you get some grace. It's not as though God looks at us and sees our potential or sees in some future sense that we would believe in some hypothetical thought. When God chose to love Abram, he was an old, childless idol worshiper. He was both helpless to save himself and rescue himself. His wife was barren. There were no kids coming from her. And he had no devotion, affection, or faith in God. I think Moses is pointing his pen at Israel and he's saying, this is you. And I would just encourage you all, we should see that God through the Holy Spirit is telling us the same thing today. Don't rewrite history. And here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we can look back and think we actually deserve salvation. Or perhaps even think now that because you're good, because you're a believer, you are somehow warranted God's goodness. By definition, grace is undeserved. So when you see something like God gives grace to the humble. God is not thinking this. Oh, you're humble, therefore I must give you grace. He's thinking something probably more along these lines. You're humble and you know you need grace. And you know you don't deserve grace. That's what makes you humble. And that's the type of person I delight in giving my grace to, but I do not feel compelled to. Because grace is not something God is compelled to give. And, and maybe I could just encourage you in our culture. Most people think that if they're good, God will be and maybe is required to be good to them. So that we would have a theology that says something like this. If I'm a good man and I do good, my marriage should feel good. Or we have a theology like this. If I am good to my kids, I read my Bible to my kids, and I tell my kids to follow Jesus, then he must save them. Those are grace-defying claims. Because what they do is they, they contract God not to grace, but to obligation. And Abram teaches us God's grace is unbound to us. It is a free gift bestowed not because of preconditions in us. It is a gift given to us despite that. I want to take you back to Genesis 12 just to, just to tease out these thoughts because I think what you see in Genesis 12 is a resumption of that theme of offspring we looked at last week in Genesis 1 through 11. You remember when Eve, when Eve and Adam sinned, Eve particularly was identified in this promise That from her there would be an offspring, and that the offspring would defeat the offspring of Satan. You recall that from last week? We kind of traced that offspring through those first 11 chapters. It's a significant thought. So so then we have the flood, we have the chaos that happens afterwards, the nations arise, the population of the earth swells, and it's almost like we've lost this. It's a little bit of a Where's Waldo moment in Genesis 12. Right? Like, where did that line go? Where did that offspring happen? We got to find this thing. We got to recover that, that tracing of that. And so Moses shows us God, out of all the peoples of the world, picks this idol worshiper in, in Ur and says, Him. He's the offspring we're going to trace now. So we come back to Genesis chapter 12. He says to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house. To the land I will show you. Let's just pause for a moment. Go back to the Garden of Eden where you have, in your mind, where Adam and Eve are walking in the presence of God. They get driven out of that place, and God guards that access with angels, cherubim. And they lose that fellowship, that presence of God. So I would say maybe this way. They lose that sacred place where they met with God, And now God is promising to this man, I am going to give you a place, land. Follow on, and I will make you a great nation. Resuming that that promise, I think, of this offspring that would be the rescuer. Then we come down to verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. And on him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So not only is Abram promised blessing, but it is through him all who? All the nations will be blessed. That that Eve's offspring that is now being shown to, to follow the line all the way to Abram is going to be the source from which all the nations will be blessed. Galatians ties this to Christ very clearly. That these promises given to Abram some 400 plus years before the exodus are actually fulfilled in the offspring of Eve named Jesus. So if we're summarizing the principles of Scripture here and tracing, I think, Moses' point as he writes this, I would suggest to you that he's trying to preach to Israel that God gives grace to undeserving people. And namely, the grace here from Abram is to do what? To call him out from idolatry and to call him unto himself. So I think there's more grace going on there that he's promised land. He's promised descendants. He's promised that his descendant will be a universal blessing to all the nations. All of those promises are captured and granted to this person. I want to say a random person named Abram. I want to move forward in the, in the text here. So let me take you to Genesis 15. In Genesis uh, 12, 13, 14, Abraham moves down to the promised land, I'm just going to say this as a side note because it just preaches so well. It's just not the I don't think it's the main themes of the text. Lot is so wealthy that he has to move away from Abram. Okay, I just like mentally put a pin in that. I'm going to come back to that. They separate. Um, Abram ends up rescuing Lot in chapter 14, chapter 15 now. We're probably, if chapter 15 happens right before chapter 16, Uh, Chapter 16 is about 13 years after he left. So so he's been in the promised land 10 plus years, maybe as many as 13. Chapter 15, verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. That's his manservant. It's like the only one who could carry on anything for me is my servant. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. I would just suggest to you that there we see Abram's salvation. Look at verse 6. To me, it's one of the most significant verses in all of the first five books of the Bible. Because you have the gospel clearly explained in a little line like this. He believed. The Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Righteousness. So you have this simple, simple line. The Lord said something. In fact, it's called the word of the Lord came to him. So God has given us this promise. Abraham's response is what? What did he do? He believed. What did God do? It says God counted it to him as righteousness. Again, Romans 4 capitalizes on this and presses the New Testament person to see that in the Old Testament, Abraham was not righteous because he moved out of Ur of the Chaldees. He was not righteous because he obeyed God and went to the promised land. He was not righteous because he was circumcised. He was not righteous because he sacrificed or was willing to sacrifice his son. He was righteous because he believed. He believed. In the first 20 chapters of the Bible, this is the only time we have the word righteousness. This is it. Now, when he says he was counted as righteous, that word counted has the idea of this happened in the understanding of God. So where where was Abraham righteous? Was it in his works? Was it in his activity? Where did he get declared righteous? In the opinion of the judge. That is, the judge of all mankind looked at Abraham his name is Abram, I I know I've said Abraham all the way through, but if we're being consistent, his name's still Abram. God looks at him and says, you're going to have a son, and he is going to be someone from whom a nation springs who will be innumerable like the stars. Now, I don't think Abraham is anyone's dummy. My guess is that he is probably like us, able to trace the, the word of God back to the garden and, and recognize God's blessing and to recognize the offspring will arise from him. And he does what? He believes. Now, let me just make a theological point here. He did not believe in Jesus Christ, and yet he's saved. He did not believe in Calvary and the resurrection, and yet he's saved. Because at this point, that hadn't been part of the promise. He merely believed what God had already told him, and that was enough. And I would suggest to you that actually helps us understand part of how Old Testament believers were saved without Jesus Christ having already come, is that they believed the promises of God up to the point at which they were living, and that's what they believed, the content. And because of that, the judge Declares them righteous. I just want you to understand that if the judge of all the universe says you are righteous and declares you to be righteous, the judgment that would send you to hell or to punishment forever that would consign you to God's place of justice for sinners, that when the judge says he is righteous and that will be the judgment the judge gives, you will no longer be in jeopardy of punishment. What the righteous get from the judge is reward, because the just judge who causes all men to be repaid according to his judgment gives to the sinner punishment and to the righteous reward, not neutrality. It's not like nothing. The sinner deserves the consequences of his guilt. Likewise, the righteous man isn't merely innocent. He is righteous. A rock is innocent. It just like sits there and does nothing and will not inherit eternal life and will not get the kingdom of heaven. You, on the other hand, if God has declared you not merely innocent but to be righteous, the judge has declared you are worthy of escaping punishment and being granted reward. On what basis did God give Abram this accounting? He believed. If you continue on, I think it's worthwhile to do so. Look down in verse 17 and 18. At least for Exodus, this will be something that resonates with you, I think. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. I know some of you know that in the Exodus... As God led Israel through the wilderness, he appeared during day as either a smoke or a cloud, and at night as what? Now, here, God's presence is illustrated by what? A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Now, the, Moses is still preaching. God, in his presence, has come down, and he's spoken to Abram, and says this verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river Egypt, I think we can assume that's the Nile, to the great river Euphrates. That is significantly bigger geographically than Israel currently possesses. So if you go from the Nile to the Euphrates, the Euphrates is where, uh, like Iraq, you think Baghdad is right off the river Euphrates. Like, that's a huge portion of land. that, as far as we can tell, Israel never nationally possessed. And that promise is still yet to be granted to Israel. It's a significant promise. It's a huge portion of land. So, putting together, I think, the themes here. God gives grace to the undeserving who trusts him who trusts in God's promises, who trusts in God's word. I think one of the questions then that Abram answers for us, how do we know we are saved? Have you ever wondered if you you are saved? Like I believe, but I don't know if I believe enough. I don't know if I believe the way I'm supposed to believe. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever wondered what's the difference between your belief and someone's belief where you don't think they actually believe what they say they believe? Like, does anyone else wonder weird questions about their belief? Or is it just me? Okay, well, maybe I'm preaching to an audience of one. I hope I'm preaching to all y'all that this actually helps you think through faith because Abram teaches us so much about the gospel. And so when you read the Old Testament, you see all the law and you see the Pharisees get it wrong. I think it's so important to know that. They are Old Testament experts who are dumb. Not because they're intellectually dumb. They're dumb because they're not seeing the grace of God and saving faith. And so because they're unsaved, they don't have the eyes of the Holy Spirit or the light of the Holy Spirit granting sight to their eyes. And so they're blind, leading the blind, Jesus would say. So don't ever think the Pharisees get it right. How do they get it wrong? They don't see Abram as this example of salvation by faith. They end up looking on the backside and ignoring the front side. Abraham believed, then he was declared righteous. How do we know he believed? Again, chapter 16 is a little bit um, of, I think, a challenge for Abram. He fails. His wife comes to him and says, hey, clearly I'm the barren one, I'm the problem. Why don't you sleep with my handmaid and get a child with her, and then you'll have a child, and God's promises will be held True. And so you see this struggle where he tries to take and satisfy God's demands by not trusting. God comes to him at the end of the chapter and says, uh, despite, I think, despite this lack of of clear faith, I'm still going to honor you. And by the way, let me make it clear my promises, Abram, your child will be yours and Sarai's, not just yours. And so God clarifies his promise. Now we come to chapter 17. And we see God demanding more of Abram. Verse 17, when Abram was 99, you thought he was old at 75. That is a ripe old age. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Some of you who know Almighty Fortress is our God. Almighty often has that idea of Lord Sabbath oath. Walk before me. And be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. Why Abraham? For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, the end of verse 5 says. As you consider what God is saying in Genesis 17, he is calling Abram to a more clear faith. And now he calls him Abraham. You're going to be the father of a multitude of nations, he says. He changes his name, he changes Sarai's name as well. But more than that, I want you to look down with me into verse 1. He demands of Abraham, I am the Lord, I am God Almighty do what? Walk before me. Walk in my presence might be a better way to to understand that phrase. In other words, Abram, walk in fellowship with me might be the way we would think of it. In other words, we should be communing and interacting on the basis of personal relationship. I mean, think of the metaphor of walk with me. My wife loves walking. I do not love walking. It is an act of deep sacrificial love when she looks at me with hope in her eyes and says, you want to go on a walk? The answer is almost always when she phrased it like that, do you want to go on a walk? The answer is always, if I'm honest, no. I don't want to. Believe me, even when I parse that out, like, I would love to spend time with you, but I don't want to walk. That still doesn't really fly. She wants me to walk with her. Because there's this sense in which we talk, we spend time together, and she gets to do something she enjoys, walking. I probably should love her more and walk with her more, probably good for my health as well. She asks it because it's a personal thing. It's not only something she enjoys, she wants to do it for the sake of us. Here God is simply saying, Abram, walk with me. This is not merely an impersonal God who's saying, believe me or I'll zap you with lightning. This is a God who says, I want to commune with my people. In fact, notice how he amplifies that promise. I will be their God. This is not something that's singularly Abraham's possession alone. He's like, this was what will happen. I will be a God to them. I will be their God and they will be my People, he is calling not only Abram, but all of these descendants after him to join Abraham in fellowship. If you look through the promises, see how God reiterates those promises, is that there will be great nations coming from him. Verse 8: He will get this land for his offspring. But you might have noticed his little addition that's not in the previous promises at the end of verse 6. From you kings shall come. And then you look down again in verse 16, I will bless her. This is after he names uh, Sarai, Sarah. I will bless her more, but I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her. And she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. So he's excluding Ishmael and Hagar and saying, Sarah is going to be the mother of nations and the mother of Kings. God is getting very clear on his promises, isn't he? This is where God then institutes circumcision. If you were to go back um, and look at verses 12 and following, where this is now a sign. And again, going back to the Pharisees, they looked at circumcision as something of a good work that would prove that they deserved God's grace and were God's people and to be saved. Scripture pulls that apart and says, hey, when you read carefully, Chapter 15, Abram gets saved. Chapter 17, circumcision starts. Salvation is not because of circumcision, circumcision is because of salvation. That's a significant theological point he makes. So we continue on and looking at Abram's life. By the way, did you ever, did you guys notice that they're going to be taken away for several hundred years? There will be about 400 years in which they'll be taken uh, and held as slaves. And then God will bring them out and make them a nation and establish them. As we continue forward, I want to take you to chapter 22 and help you understand this last point, And then I want to bounce into James. I think it's, it's really a rich point James makes, and it's a little bit challenging if you don't have context. You now have context. Chapter 22. Verse one, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And God says to him, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I don't think we have an exact number on Abraham's age, Abraham's age, excuse me, but Isaac has been born. He's weaned now, and he's obviously able to talk and interact with his dad and walk with his dad, so we know he's not just a, 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 a little infant. So this puts Abraham somewhere probably between, I don't know, around 110, maybe to 130 years old. And at this point, that also makes Sarah very old. And God says, take that son, that only son, that son you love, just in case there's any, like, confusion about how easy this is for Abraham and do what with him sacrifice him not merely sacrifice him it's a burnt offering what will be left of Isaac when Abraham is done this is one of those like breathtaking brutal moments in scripture now, it's clear from verse 1 following that God had never given any intention for Abraham to kill his own son. But Abraham doesn't know what we know. We, we have God's intention in the very first line, God tested him. So we continue on and we see that Abraham takes his son. And by the way, this is one of those places where I think as a piece of literature, the Bible is shown to be excellent. The Holy Spirit draws us to see the, this the challenge, I think, of Abraham. Have you ever seen a child do what they don't want to do, and it takes them forever? It's like, son, I want you to go out and mow the lawn. Two hours later, they're still putting on their shoes. Like, what are you doing? They're like, dad, I'm getting ready. I'm putting on my shoes. And they're tying their laces in slow motion. And, and they're forgetting things, and they're going back. It's almost like that's how you feel like Abram is here struggling. Like. It's like Abraham gets ready, and he goes and gets the wood. And he goes and gets his donkey. And then he puts his saddle on the donkey. And you're like, really? Like, we're just drawing out the story. So we feel Abraham's hesitancy to do this with his son. So we come to verse 9. They came to a place which God had told them. The place is Mount Moriah. If you would go back and read verses 1 and 2, Mount Moriah is the present place where the temple is located still. At this point, it seems to be just nothing, just wilderness. And Abraham goes to this mountain, and he climbs and ascends this mountain with his son Isaac, and it is the mountain that about 600 years, 700 years later, David is going to consecrate as the temple location for God. And for the next 500 years, Israel is going to sacrifice on that location lambs, as substitutes for guilty sinners. It is that location in the temple precincts where Jesus Christ was, before the Sanhedrin, convicted and sentenced to death. It was probably over the bloody brook Kidron that Jesus walked as lambs were killed in that temple on the night he was taken to be crucified. That's where Isaac is tied to an altar. You come back, and you see that Abram built altar, lays wood on the altar, bound his son Isaac. Again, Moses is drawing out the story to, to call you to consider the personal crisis going on in the soul of Abraham. I think there's probably multiple factors, and it's worthwhile for us just to note them. Isaac is the son of promise. You go back, and, and the scripture's clear. This is the son God promised. Right, when Sarah laughs in the tent, there's the son that's going to be promised is going to be born to you next year at about this time, and she's 90, or she's yeah, 89, and she laughs. So this is the son of promise, and he's going to kill this precious son whom he loves. But it's also the promise is going to die. Right, like it's not just, my son is dead, he hasn't had any children. So not only do I kill the son, I kill the offspring line from the garden. And at this point, I think Abram's thinking, and we're done having kids. Especially if he's like pushing 120 or 130. He's like, this thing's over. The promise is done. This is a period, not a comma. This is the end of it. And so he's going through this crisis, not only of faith, but of loyalty. Do I obey God? Because it seems to break his promise. Do I kill my son, which will break my heart? What do I do? What does Abraham do? Verse 10, Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, "Abraham, Abraham!" And he said, "Here I am." And you almost feel the relief. Oh, my laces are still untied. I got to tie them again. Right, like I don't have to go mow the yard yet. Another delay has entered. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know. For now, I know that you fear God. Sing. You have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of this place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Verse 15 then, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. So this messenger from the Lord is not an angelic being, but probably actually the Lord himself. Angel means messenger, and so sometimes it's hard to know how to to phrase it. So this messenger of the Lord, being the Lord himself, speaks and says, because I've sworn this, and what you've done for me and not withheld your son, your only son, verse 17, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. So what in the world is happening? Well, let me take it to Hebrews and then to James, and then we'll wrap up and... And hopefully this becomes really clear to you what is going on in, in Abraham's life. First, comes faith. When you look in Hebrews 11 verse 17, the inside of the Holy Spirit obviously knows more than was written in Genesis. In verse 17 of Hebrews 11, by faith, when he was tested, see I was pulling that language from From chapter 22, verse 1, Abraham was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So remember, Abraham's crisis, not only of a broken heart, but of the broken promises is significant to the author of Hebrews 2, right? Isaac is the son of promise. God's promises are going to be wrecked if this son dies. So how is Abraham wrestling through this? He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking he did receive him back. So what was Abraham thinking? Abraham's thinking that he's going to have to plunge a knife into his son, set a torch to this altar, burn up his son, and then God will do what? Raise him from the dead. Why? Why? Because God can. And God has promised. And if God has promised, and if Isaac is the son of promise, then this child is going to be the child from which nations come. And God is faithful, therefore I trust. That's a compelling statement on what saving faith actually looks like. So when the Old Testament says in chapter 15, verse 6 of Genesis, Abraham believed God, this is not merely like, oh yeah, you know. This is, this is like a soul deep commitment to trust the God who has promised this, to trust the content of his promises, to apply them to his life in such a way that Abraham, when tested, is willing to risk the power of God to raise his son from the dead because he trusts in the promise giver so deeply rather than save his own son or try to manipulate the promises of God. So, so like, putting that together, Abraham is saved on the basis of faith, but what is the nature of the saving faith? It's a saving faith that obeys. It's a saving faith that acts. It's a saving faith that does what is told it. And this is what James says. Again, it's a little bit of a confusing text, so it's worthwhile now that you understand the flow of Abraham's life. Come with me to James chapter 2. Have you ever heard someone say something that they say they believe, which they clearly don't? Maybe we could say there's a difference between the faith you claim and the faith you live. That claimed faith, as in I believe that, is not always true. That there is a difference between faith lived out and a faith that's merely professed. James is putting his finger on that because apparently in his churches that he's shepherding through this letter he's concerned that there are people who say they're Christians, who say they're believers, but he's concerned that their faith is not actually the type of faith that will bring salvation. It's a claim, and a weak and shallow claim. So verse 14 starts this section, we're not going to read through the whole section, But he's asking a rhetorical question as an introduction to this. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? The rhetorical answer is no. But there is a type of faith out there that is non-saving faith. It's a faith that knows about God but does not obey him. It's a type of faith that claims to honor God but does not honor him. It's a type of faith that doesn't leave the heart affectionate and loving and faithful towards the God of Scripture. It leaves it indifferent, disobedient, unenergized to obey the God they say they believe in. Look with me in verse 19. He makes that clear. You believe that God is one. Pastor Mike was mentioning this morning that God is singular in nature and three in person. And this, this, again, makes that same point, that God is a unit. That is, he's a unity. He's three in one. You believe that God is one? Good for you. Even the demons believe and shudder. Demons aren't redeemed. Do they know the truth? Do they believe the truth in that sense then? Does it cause them to turn from their wicked way? No. They're more entrenched in it. They're rebels, even though they know the truth. They know it so well that it causes them to be terrified and tremble. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see then that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him. As righteousness, You see, James is quoting in Genesis 15 that phrase that we talked about where Abraham believes and he is counted as righteous. But you go back and you see that Abraham was justified by works when he offered up Isaac. What are we supposed to do with that? It almost seems like Abraham was saved when he offered up Isaac. That's not what the text is intending for us to understand. What the text is intending us to understand, I think, is really made clear then in in the following verses, verse 22. Faith was active and completed by his works. The end of faith is a life transformed. If the end of faith is merely faith, it is non-saving faith. Maybe you could say it like this. What is the purpose of a fruit tree? So when you have a beautiful, green, lush, vibrant tree that has no fruit on it, it is a fruit tree that has not fully matured. It's not accomplished its purpose. Or as the text here says, faith was completed. It's a fruit tree that's not yet complete. Faith is like that fruit tree, and the fruit like works. You can't paste apples on a pine tree and say, look, there's an apple tree. Well, I mean, you can. You're just dumb. And it doesn't make it an apple tree. Likewise, if you have an apple tree or you claim it's an apple tree and it's fruitless, it has not actually accomplished its purpose. The purpose of a fruit tree is to bear fruit. The purpose of saving faith is not merely to give you calm and peace so that you think you're saved. The purpose of Faith, according to James, is that it transforms you to someone who lives for the God you say you believe in. A a life that is filled with claims of faith, convictions about the, the truths of Scripture, but leaves you unchanged, will also leave you unsaved. The outcome of saving faith is a sanctified life is a life of repentance, is a life of obedience. Have you ever thought back in Genesis 22 when God tests Abraham that this is really challenging theologically because God knows everything? Like, what was God testing? Does God know Abraham's faith is saving? Does God know what Abraham will do? It's not as though when Abraham, you know, is is putting Isaac on the altar that God is up in heaven going, what is he going to do? I hope he obeys. I want him to pass this test. God knew. So why does God do this? Do you think it's not for Abraham and for all of those who are like Abraham in saving faith that we might know that the proving or the testing of our faith is a life devoted to God? Abraham was saved by faith. His faith is revealed in obedience. So if you want to know if you have saving faith, there's a simple question you might want to ask yourself. Do I love God and live for him because I love him? You're not saved because you live for God. You're saved because you believe. Because God is a God of grace to those who believe. God justifies Abraham when he believes. And so now I think moving forward, Israel struggles to recognize this fact. They think salvation is because they're children of Abraham biologically. Romans tells us that not all Israel was Israel. That the true children of Abraham are Abraham's children because like him, they believe. And so there's a sense in which maybe we could think of there's kind of two Two ways we're tracing the offspring. One is the righteous believer, and one is the ethnic group of people that's related biologically to Abraham. So when we come into the Exodus, what do you think Exodus wants Israel to do? Believe, trust. And so we constantly see Israel battle with that trust because they constantly complain. They do. Like, I can almost, we've been going through Exodus with our kids, and if I just kind of pause in this question. So Israel was thirsty, and then they, my kids would go, complained. Because they didn't do what? Trust. They didn't trust the God of promise, the God who was faithful, the God who was present. And we can look back at Israel and say, yeah, they're dumb. But when you compress like 40 years of history into a few chapters, it looks like they're constantly complaining, but you're not watching your child cry because they're thirsty and there's no water. You're not looking at your animals get, get anemic and shriveled and lose their health and stop producing milk because there's no food or water. You're not watching loved ones die and having to bury them and keep on walking in a wilderness for weeks and months, coming to a new camping location, and it too is a desert. And there's no water. And you're like, we're all going to die. You're not there. But you are in places where God is testing you. You are in places that are hard. You are in places that are difficult. So, So let's take a second and maybe suggest to ourselves that in a text like this, where we're covering like 10 chapters of Scripture, that if we, if we grab a summary and kind of work it into our lives, that we could actually be very much strengthened and encouraged. So let's start with this. God gave Abraham promises because God chose to love a man who didn't deserve it. What should Abraham be thinking? If he can go back through the biography of his life, what should he be thinking when he thinks of who he is? Something like this, Mike. Dear God, thank you. Thank you for saving me. I was helpless. I was hopeless. I was heart of heart. And I was hell bound. And I couldn't do a thing about it until you called me to your grace. Thank you. Who in this room is any different? That's who you are. That's who I am. We are people who, when God chose to love us, brought nothing to the table, we were not attractive to his grace, he was not compelled by anything outside of himself to love us, we were nobodies going nowhere except hell, and we had nothing by which we could cling to heaven its promise and say, please save me except the grace of God. So we should start with just like, God, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. What did God call him to do? God gave him promises and Abraham's response was to do what with those promises? So you and I are called to do the same. Has God given you many and various promises? So many, so many. And like Abraham, we tend to try to move them to please us. I mean, even just maybe getting a hold of the faith propositions of Scripture. But if God can raise Isaac from the dead and that emboldens Abraham to obey, perhaps when you have that hard-hearted, obnoxious teenager, rather than giving up on them or yelling and screaming at them or manipulating them, you can remember that the God who raises the dead can fix a hard heart and rather than leaning into sin to get your kid to do what you want them to do you can be a man or a woman of faith you all know that marriage is difficult and our church has several marriages for which we are heartbroken because they are so difficult and those marriages are getting in the place of failure and it wouldn't surprise me if we interviewed the people struggling in those marriages and said why are you quitting your marriage that they have given up. There's not been a moral failure. They're just tired. They're exhausted. They're spiritually on empty, and they're done. I just want to lean in and say, can God change your husband's heart? Is there a promise in scripture that you think he has promised you to have a sweet marriage that would lead you to believe that it's okay for you to quit? If he can call Abraham to kill his son, are you willing to die to your own desires in order to honor and obey him? Do you believe that God will give you strength? Do you believe he can bring repentance to your husband. Do you believe he can stir your heart to love him or her again? If he can raise the dead. He can do that. If he can bring a 90-year-old lady to fertility and the successful birth of a beautiful son, he can do that. Do you believe I think oftentimes in our lives, when we see Christians heading toward choices to sin, we are saying, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. We might want to just go back and say, do you believe? Like, are you actually a Christian who believes that God is worth trusting? Not to be obnoxiously like, you're going to hell and burning, but to be calling them to believe. You've trusted God that his word is true to save you, but you're not trusting that his word is true when it comes to responding with forgiveness to your annoying mother-in-law? Like, why? Why, why have you... You guys, you guys are, like, all thinking of actual mother-in-laws. I'm just trying to use illustrations that are real, not like, like, I like my mother-in-law. Mine is fantastic, so... I think on those, on, on those measures, we are, we are somehow disconnecting gospel faith from a life of faith. Maybe the first question you should ask your heart, when you're just willing to say, I'm done, I quit, I, I can't, is say, hey, where did that gospel faith go? Abraham believed God. It was counted as righteousness. Chapter 15, chapter 22, God says, let's see the quality of the faith. Saving faith is a faith that causes us to walk with God. It's a faith that causes us to obey him and be righteous. Now, order matters, so think about it like this. God gives promises. Abraham's response is to believe, and that belief generates righteousness. It is not, God said, I'll save you if you're righteous. Again, God's word, we believe, and then it leads to a life of devoted, affectionate obedience. I just wonder if anyone's going get, to get that with me. You guys are all afraid. I just trip you up with my great questions so often. You guys have all learned, don't answer his questions or get it wrong. Do you believe? Do you believe in the God of the Bible? Some of you are battling hard sins, repetitive sins. You're in hard marriages. You have difficult children. You have coworkers that test your faith on a regular basis. Do you believe? Perhaps your struggles, you don't know God's word and God's promises well, so make a commitment that you are going to learn God's word so you can follow his promises and be guided by them. Perhaps you grew up in a in a church, type of system that taught you that your salvation is because you do church, because you um, ask for forgiveness of sins, because you do, do, do. Listen, that is not the example of Scripture. That is not the doctrine of Scripture. And that is actually not faith in Christ. That's faith in you. Salvation is this. God promises to save you through the work of Jesus Christ. You believe that God saves you by his grace alone. You trust in God alone to save you. You reject any contribution to God's saving work because you trust in it alone. So some of you have grown up with kind of high church backgrounds, and a lot of times in high church, the doing of church stuff is what saves you. Whether it's a Catholic church or a Lutheran church or even some of the the quasi-Christian cults like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism, there is so much pressure to be a performer. Abraham is declared righteous because he generated trust we're to come back and gospel of grace a gospel that does not require performance in order to get saved and in fact you save us despite our poor performance there is not one thing our hand touches outside of your supporting and sustaining grace that is worthy of sacrifice to you there is nothing we could offer that would bend your heart to Give us salvation. You save us because as with Abraham, you love us. And you love us because you're a loving God who bestows your love on sinners who don't deserve it. Father, it is with every confidence that we come to you with hearts of faith. Because you have said you save all those who call upon your name. Those who confess their sins and trust in you are always saved. And so we, we, we commit now to being a church that believes and trusts in the work of Jesus Christ to save sinners. We believe in his death on the cross as the means by which you poured out on him all the justice and anger and wrath deserved for our sins. We believe that he fully paid the price. And that his burial in the grave and following resurrection proves the price has been fully paid. We believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He has done all that is needed for salvation and we believe. We believe that his resurrection not only proves a final payment, it proves and secures life everlasting for all who trust in him. We believe that the promises given to Abraham, that a king will come from him, have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that when he comes again and sits on the throne and rules over us, that we will be his people forever and ever, we believe. Father, we pray that in the shadowy corners of our hearts, when distrust and fears and hurts and injuries cause us not to believe, that with the light of Scripture and the penetrating power of the Holy Spirit, you would bring us to conviction and we would repent and believe. When we are tempted to take life into our own hands, manipulate people, respond with anger, stop obeying you, disregard prayer, or fail to read the Scriptures that we might be walking in fellowship with you, we ask that you would strengthen our faith because it is weak. Lord, we are not yet what we should be. We pray that you would make us like Jesus Christ. For those in here who could not echo the sentiments of belief that I just prayed, Father, give them faith. Strengthen their hearts to look to the cross of Jesus Christ. It is that singular place in which you did the work through your son of saving everyone who calls on him. And even now in this room, Lord, give voice to their hearts that they might call on your name and be saved that they might pray and confess their sin, put their confidence in Jesus Christ, and be saved from the punishment of sin forever and ever. Lord, having believed, I ask that you give us hearts of obedience, hearts that joyfully, lovingly are devoted to you, and love obeying you. For this we plead, that by your grace we might please you as Abraham did, and thereby be recipients of blessings through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.